I'm not the biggest Lord of the Rings fan. In general, or uh, in general, I like The Hobbit, like the book The Hobbit, but I've never been. Aside from that, I've never been the biggest Lord of the Rings fan. I would not be allowed to say that in my house. I actually enjoy the movies. <laughs> um, stuff I'm not that. really allowed to say it here either. Jared <laughs> does not like that at all. <laughs> I let him do it. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. There you go. Hey, there's compromise in relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yep. I've watched them. I tried to read one of the books. Yes. Other than The Hobbit. And I did not make it very far. Yeah. Okay. <sighs> Welcome to the Word and Journey podcast. Conversations with friends about stories that shape us and make us think. And some stories that are just for fun. We're busy people reading books in realistic increments. Follow along in the book and join in the conversation. Or just sit back and enjoy. Our aim is to unpack the story and offer you things to ponder. Either way, thanks for being here. All right, welcome to the Word and Journey podcast conversations with friends about stories that shape us and make us think. I'm Moses. I'm Jake. <laughs> and I'm Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm watching. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I do have hosts. This is us being a very egalitarian. Uh, so anyway, yes, uh, we are all here and I'm happy we're all here. <laughs> anyway. We are talking through 1984. If you've been following along, we've now come to chapters five and six. And we'll be talking about the plot, the characters, the themes therein, what we think does shape us, should shape us, should not shape us, and interesting things to think about. So we'll be talking about words and language today. That's going to be exciting. As a as a courteous, as a courteous co-host. As a courteous show host, I will defer to one of you to kick it off. Um, what's a character thing, a plot thing, or a concept thing that immediately jumps out to you in these chapters? Um, well, I really liked that whole conversation that he had with, I don't know what the guy's name was. It's like Syme or Sim. Sim, or, I think. Sim, yeah. um, Sim. Where they talked about the dictionary and how over the next few years they're Basically, they're getting rid of all these different words. And so you take like a word like good and they're changing it to um, ungood or plus good. So instead of having words like, oh, I'm okay today or I'm fantastic today, it's just I'm good. I'm ungood. I'm plus good. And so I just think the concept of that is very interesting because you lose losing specificity of um words it means you're losing like emotion and feeling behind those words you're losing a lot of depth yeah that really wrinkled me as a writer i was like where's my (laughs) where's my tools you're taking my tools Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i i saw a little bit of the um what would you call it anyways like uh the the levels of good i guess they're they're still there but you're right Mm -hmm. it does take a lot of the emotional aspect from it away or it feels like it does because you know like plus good double plus good that's like yeah that's super awesome mm-hmm. from an engineering standpoint i'm almost like oh that would make my life so much easier because like i could actually write things out but yeah and it's you know it reminds me of just like how much specificity we've lost even within just the english language you know c- compared to 
other more ancient languages, Greek, for example, had a lot, um, even mid English and old English had a lot more words from what I remember. And so it's, it's definitely interesting. And he, this guy, Sim takes it at the point of like making thought cream, not just thought crime, not just illegal, but impossible because you won't have the words to express it. It was really interesting. And Sim would say, you know, Sim had this quote, it's, it's a beautiful thing, the destruction of words. Yeah, I, I, was, I was feeling that, like, the, so what happens when specificity of language goes away? Hey, I mean, I mean, I think life just becomes a bit more dull because there's not as many ways, you know, that there's a vibrancy that goes away. But also, like, one of my professors in my undergrad, he was, he was fond of saying at the beginning of wisdom is calling a thing by its right name. Which was, and he was quoting Confucius and, and he attributed it, but, um, yeah, but it's this thing of like, you know, is this thing just good or is it stupendous? And that that kind of matters. It was making me think about, uh, the abolition of man by C.S. Lewis, which so so to be fair is a book that I, uh, I have started, I've gotten about a a few pages into it and then life came up. So I haven't fully read it, but, but I have heard a little bit of what it's about, but in that book, he's. Uh, he's talking about he's talking about like language language and, and the effects of of taking it away. And he starts off by commenting on this conversation where someone someone's looking at a waterfall and saying, "Wow, that's sublime." And then somebody else says, "No, you just feel sublime about it, or you feel it sublime." And he's and he's and he goes on this um, really interesting discourse about well, what happens when what happens when a thing no longer has inherent value, but only the value that you, uh, that you, uh, apply to it, you know, and ultimately like, like the deconstruction of all society, but, but it starts with language and it starts with like being really precise mm-hmm. about language or not. And so it was, I was in, <laughs> I wish to invoke that for us readers and thinkers who, who like to think about things. Yeah. Um, go ahead, Jake. Oh, I, uh, sorry. I thought you were finished with your thought. <laughs> That's okay. Go ahead. No, it just brings to mind something that's almost kind of the reverse of this idea of stripping away words from a language. And this this thought about perception, you know, Sim's comment on making thought crime impossible. The color blue. So there are tribes to this day that don't have a word for blue. And we actually in modern texts, uh, only relatively recently, like back to the 1800s, I think, have seen use the word blue pretty frequently. And, you know, there were ancient writers that would describe things like the sea as dark wine colored. I don't know what kind of wine they were drinking, but (laughs) (laughs) they should probably have checked it out. (laughs) And so there was an MIT study where this, the guy running the study brought in a tribe who, you know, their, their native language has no word for blue. And he showed them eight squares or something like that, maybe more of all green, and then one obviously blue. It would have been obvious to us, but that all the people from that tribe who were asked to differentiate the colors actually had a really hard time because that perception of blue kind of comes with the language. Interestingly enough, that tribe has a massive number of words to describe green. Uh, And so that that also complicated things. But yeah, it was just like the language, language, opens or closes perception. That's making me think about what comes up in, in counseling work. Uh, it's a question about diagnosing and, you know, do you diagnose a person? Do you share the diagnosis? And 
lots of problems with how uh, the modern psychological industry handles diagnoses and problems with the DSM. But but they're like people like over identifying with a label or just casually carelessly throwing labels around. And, and that's not good. But but there is this thing that happens sometimes where somebody has been and, and I think I, it it's a little bit more common when like somebody's grown up with like an undiagnosed condition. And then at some point they go through a test they, they receive a diagnosis and they are so relieved because they're like, finally, I have a name for what I've been experiencing or finally, I'm not crazy. I have ADHD or something. And so there, there can be a way that an accurate, well thought out diagnosis can be comforting in a way because it gives a person like something solid to kick against in a way. So, but, but again, like that would require like having access to all of the languages or all of the words and being able to like accurately accurately denote a thing mm -hmm. i want to i want to share this before uh just because i'm eager and then maybe we can say more but have either of you ever heard of this book the lost words no okay so it's the lot the lost words it's by robert robert mcfarland and jackie morris and it's a beautiful book it's it's big there's like these really really gorgeous illustrations all throughout but what it was is they they were noticing that words were disappearing from the dictionary uh, because they were falling out of use, you know, and they weren't like, I don't know, from my perspective, not like obscure words. It was words like, like, like adder and conkle and bramble and fern mm. and dandelion and things that just were not part of common speech anymore. And so they were getting taken out of the dictionary. And so this book is dandelion. A really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So they compiled this book, Kingfisher was taken out. So, so they compiled this book of those words and then the definitions and, uh, and illustrations, because a lot of them are, are nature oriented. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pitch this book. Uh, I'm not being paid for this, by the way, um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's, it's, yeah, it's really beautiful to look at. It's this really beautiful concept and goodness, it's like words that, we should we should grow up hearing, mm -hmm. except dandelion. I'd be okay <laughs> if those don't stay at least not in like my garden or anything. Those I hated having to go out to pick dandelions. Right. See, yeah. see, I have a five year old who goes out and picks all the dandelions. So that's that's all it takes is you just you go. got a kid and they go do that. Yeah, I know. They like my to kids. give them all to their parents. <laughs> <laughs> they do. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, my kids know they can eat them because they're they're medicinal. So mm -hmm. that's true. Yeah, as long as they haven't been sprayed or anything. Yeah, I mean, and right. it's great for pollinators. Yeah, like if you're an apiary, you tend to love dandelions. Yep, indeed. So all that to say, we shouldn't lose our dandelions. Although, yeah, and if we could like lump mosquitoes among those, uh, I'd be okay with that. Yeah. Especially I would the, like uh, to lump the mosquitoes the in. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. So, yeah, yes, indeed. So speaking about your Lost Words book, so I also I also have a book that I read this year and I actually would consider it probably the best book that I've read this year. And it's called The Dictionary of Lost Words by Pip Williams. And it's it's a fictional book, but it's exploring when the first Oxford English Dictionary was made talking about how they they kind of chose the different words that went in in there it's specifically like there's this one girl and she's she's noticing that certain words were left out like things that pertain to women or to 
like just lower classes and things like that, things that weren't in print or so again, it, I just, I think it was really, really well done. Just thinking about that in context to this, what's here in 1984, it makes me think that the loss of language is, is more important than just loss of, like, it's just as important as loss of historical knowledge because you're losing what your society values or doesn't value. And by observing the changes that you, by observing the changes that you, um, see over time and how your language has changed you know you you learn where you came from and what you've learned from everything that is so true that sounds like an amazing book i'd love to check it it's out it's really really good yeah but but yeah that I mean that seems like a, a really strong continuation of this theme that was is starting like i mean this is a society that's already lost its history and I think we're going to, we'll see how they're, they're also starting to, to lose connections with each other. And so, mm-hmm. you know, losing history, losing, losing words and losing ability to talk about things specifically or, or freely. I, I'd be curious what you think, is, you know, I mean, I'm sure in the story, they'll kind of like outline more of like, well, what happens when, when this happens? And that seems like part of the exploration, but and I'm just like in my head projecting well, what happens like when a person doesn't have history, doesn't have language, doesn't have connection. You know, A, that just sounds really, really depressing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because like we're not really meant to, we're not designed to live in that sort of isolation or or interior vacuum. But but it seems like, yeah, there'd be, there'd be nothing to, nothing to stand on, like nothing to really work for or strive after. And I suppose, you know, a person in that state would just be, intuitively really hungry for anything solid to lean on or anything Mm -hmm. purposeful or directive and so yeah again maybe like really really ripe for any sort of like abuse or manipulation Mm -hmm. whoever has like the clearest loudest voice big brother (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i just think you'd flounder without anything to to believe in to you know to know about yourself you if if you don't know your history, you have nothing to stand on. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't know your history, I'm thinking about like floundering people now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the version I see come up in, in, in my work is, is people who uh, have, have lost or given up or stepped away from a belief system. Um, you know, and, and specifically it's, you know, you know, stepping away from any sort of, you know, spiritual belief, but I am just, I'm just no, I mean, granted, speaking from within the Christian tradition, uh, Christianity is a very hard tradition to do, to do well. I mean, it's, it's, it's demanding, it's costly. It makes you look funny sometimes. So there, there's a lot of difficulties to it, but, but I, I look out and I observe people who, you know, are, are still trying to, to do, but like life is hard. And I'm, I'm looking at people who are trying to do life and navigate like, you know, you know, politics and climate change and mm. all of the, everything mm-hmm. like with, with nothing beyond this and you know these people who like 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 the most that they could hope for would be like a redistribution of wealth in a fair way uh and like because they, they they don't they don't allow themselves anything bigger than that and uh, and it just that that seems difficult because it's like they it's, it's it's you versus the world and not in a really friendly way and like i don't know i i <laughs> that, that just seems really difficult but i mean i, I know there's reasons for people coming to that place but it just seems difficult. <laughs> so. so beautiful thing, destruction of words, says Sam, although I, I don't I don't really agree. <laughs> but, 
Well, it's it's that like self-assuredness, right? It's almost like the the pride we find in our work. Mm-hmm. And I I can get that in a very cynical way. But yeah, this character is very, very much like he f- I can't tell if it, the Sim honestly feels like this is the good or some some other motivator that's behind this for him. But it's interesting to like Winston, the protagonist goes on to say, oh, yeah, he's going to get vaporized. And and w- like this is in the midst of this whole like self-depressive. Oh, I'm going to get vaporized and everybody's going to yeah. get vaporized. Except what was his name? Mr. Parsons. Mr. Parsons. Uh, so we met yes. her, his, ha, that, try that again. We met, we his, met wife. his wife. <laughs> it's the morning. I've had a half cup of coffee. It's great. Yeah. In <laughs> chapter two, I believe with the, mm-hmm. uh, with the kids that like hit Winston with the catapult. And Winston has a very like dismissive view almost of par- Mr. Parsons. Mm-hmm. He's, I think Parsons was, is part of the spies. Um, I'm not sure what his, like, because it sounds like the spies is like an extracurricular group. Uh, so I'm not sure what his actual job is or if it, it is spying. An extracurricular spy group, like like the Phi Theta Kappa, something, something. Can you put that on yeah. a resume? That'd be fun. I Yeah, yeah. that'd be fun. I'm a yeah. super spy in my spare time. <laughs> nice. But Sim, or not Sim, Parsons seems to be bought in wholesale, but this dismissive view that Winston has of Parsons is that he's, I read it as dumb. Yeah, that's what I got. It felt like a very low view. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there, there's kind of this sense that, that Sim, he's like in the party, but he's like in the party, but not of the party because he's like saying things that are, he's like able to say true things about the party, but without any wisdom. Like he doesn't have any discretion or, or maybe he doesn't, he, uh, like Winston seems to be the one who seems like the the maleficent intent, uh, whereas Sim is either just like, hey, these things are cool, and like mm-hmm. not aware that he's like revealing things that shouldn't be revealed. Yeah, I think I think my term for it was no discretion in his intense zeal. That sounds really good. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I did. I did have this one moment. So the Big Brother Society. They, they use the word orthodoxy a lot, which I know, I think I know they're not talking about like, you know, Eastern Orthodox Christianity. So I, I know they're not like specifically, you know, I don't know. Okay. So they're not talking about orthodoxy, orthodoxy as I know it, but, but when they say things like, you know, orthodoxy means not thinking orthodoxy is unconsciousness. You know, they're talking, they're referencing their, their system and what is, what is proper thought, which is what, what what the word means in in Christianity too is like you know like right believing right thinking like the like the right way. I, I did wonder though if like a comment like that is kind of this subtle subtle dig at well maybe oh well maybe not religion specifically but it seemed like it's a dig a dig at people who just adhere to an authority structure or it's the sense that if we're not careful we can just adhere to an authority, whether it's a religious or political authority without thinking. And, and there, there are those probably who just kind of swallow it uh, to borrow, you know, Parsons term without, without thinking, without really owning it, without really understanding it. And it's possible that those people, the most susceptible to being used by their own system, um, as opposed to, you know, someone, it's also very possible to, 
adhere to that very same system and maybe even to a high degree, but with a, a higher degree of awareness. Like This is what I believe in why. This is why we do this thing. This is the history of it. This is the implication of it. Uh, I know more than just how to win a debate about it, but I understand its origins, things and things and things. So I, <laughs> I'm reaching maybe to extract practical application <laughs> from this text, but... <laughs> <laughs> But, but it seems like, I don't know, Winston seems to fear or not respect these people who are like kind of just going with the party line and not questioning it at all. But while at the same time being afraid to become one of those questioner people. But, mm-hmm. but then because he's questioning, he also gets to be the protagonist. So there you go. Duck speak. That was a fun term. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My one-year-old is learning to make animal sounds and he, he has this like cute little sound he does for a duck. So, but, mm-hmm. but I don't think that's what Winston's talking about. <laughs> so anyway, so there's this interesting moment where Winston's thinking about Sim, you know, he's, you know, Sim 2 in some more complex way involving DoubleThink. Uh, Sim swallowed it, swallowed the party line. Okay. So then Winston is musing, is he alone in the possession of a memory? Which was making me wonder about wonder again, like, what is true? How do we know it's true? Like, if something exists in my mind or in my memory, is that enough for it to be a true thing? I guess in contrast to, like, what the party says is true. What are are your thoughts there? Well, I mean, we were talking about perception, right? The same scenario, the same moment in time can be viewed wildly different from two different angles. And both of those angles are, or can be at least, perfectly valid at the same time, even if they seem contradictory. And so there's there's that to take away from it. And then there's also, you know, the the aspect of, you know, somebody denying that something happened, taking it a step further of not just saying, no, that's not how I perceived it, but that literally did not happen. Uh, I feel like a lot of us have dealt with this and it's basically gaslighting through some point in our lives. I dealt with it with familial relationships and things like that, that, uh, you know, sometimes it takes a long time to break out of. Sometimes you don't even realize that it was there. I mean, that's kind of the insidiousness of it. And so that's what seems to really be happening with um, the government and Big Brother here in 1984 is, you know, this gaslighting and i know that's kind of a buzz popular buzzword today being taken to an extreme level you know we saw it in the last couple of chapters with the newspapers being rewritten things like that and so it's you know perception is incredibly powerful and when you can manipulate perception when you can tell people that that thing they experienced didn't happen and you can even say you know oh i have proof of it in in the case of 1984 especially you can really start to break down somebody's, I would argue, somebody's identity to a point. One of the things um, that we, I was told a lot when I was a manager in the deli was just um, perception is reality. So it doesn't even necessarily matter what happened. What matters is what people perceive to have happened. So when we'd have an issue between employees, it wouldn't be like, yes, we'd be trying to figure out what happened, but ultimately all that mattered is what they they thought had happened and so like looking at this you know I just think everyone's almost so 
it's it's so ingrained that they they just take what's what's told to them that that's the perception is well what's told to us is is reality so this is our this is what we're going to go with so even though you know he's saying am i alone in this memory he may not be but i think that they've just accepted it or they're too afraid to even question Right, he may not be alone in his reality, but if he perceives that he is, mm-hmm. then that then that becomes his reality, and then that determines how he lives. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I've I've heard the perception is reality many times also, and as as you as you were talking about it, it was seeming like one of those maxim realities that is very very useful, very relevant to people who are constructing reality entertainers, you know, movie producers, you know, marketer, marketing people, uh, marketing campaign people, potentially a really dangerous thing for people who are just participating in the reality or trying to participate in the reality or having to kind of make a choice of accepting that reality or not. I I would wonder, this is a very spontaneous uh, tangent, so (laughs) forgive me if it's awkward, but what are what have you two discovered like good or effective or ways to you know, test your reality or step back from your reality to look at it a little bit? I don't know. Does that make sense? I don't know. I I think because a lot of what your what your reality is is what you're thinking in your head. And so I'd say I use a lot of like you know, my husband or some really good friends to be like, okay, am I thinking this correctly? Am I really alone? Am I really, you know, just not thinking this through right? So I think a lot of times I use other people to make sure that I'm grounded in what I'm thinking. And I think that's the problem that you have here in 1984 is he doesn't have anybody that he feels is safe to talk to. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, Getting out of your own head while at the same time, like, you know, finding, finding that safe person, right? Like I said before, people, people can absolutely mess with your perception, uh, even well-meaning. Like it, it doesn't have to be completely nefarious, but, you know, make sure that you have somebody who can be as objective as possible and still care about you. Uh, I think is one of the biggest things. I know I feel like I should probably be saying, oh yeah, I should journal too. I'm horrible at journaling. I am too. <laughs> <laughs> I will write one time and then nothing else happens for the next year. Yep. I used to be really good at it, but uh, you know, then I grew up, so I'm not good at it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> <I grew up. laughs> yeah, the the getting out of your own head seems really, really essential. Or, Or I was thinking on the scale of like getting out of a community altogether for, I think one of the, uh, one of the, some, what really jump started my, my perception growth was, you know, when I, when I left my smallish town and my little homeschool conservative evangelical bubble and started, well, at first, and, you know, and I just, I just went to Bible college, started interacting with like other denom- denominations. And I was like, Oh wow. Like the world is like so much bigger than I thought it was, mm-hmm. you know? And then I got, then I got my first like real job, like outside of Christendom, like I was working at Starbucks and then I started in, well, like I, I jumped into food service and then I started encountering like people from like all walks of life. And I was like, Oh wow. <laughs> the world's really big. And I think like, like that, that expanded my reality even more than like, like a mission trip to, to Tunisia. Mm-hmm. Because I was like, because I was interacting with people who thought differently and and, inter- and interacted differently, and 
And and then and then I guess on a personal level, I mean, there there are some things that happen in my life where within my within my reality, my culture, there's kind of a, a narrative of like how I was supposed to be to be like you know a good good member of my of my society. And then I started just like discovering things about myself that just didn't fit that. And and so I had to I was comparing my internal reality as it was changing with the external reality around me. And and thankfully, I, yeah, I had people I could talk to about it because I would have been really, really, really stressful to deal with just, just on my own. But yeah, I think, I think, yeah, being able to step out and, and or step, step back from something to, to look at it and, and be curious about it. And you know, there's, again, I'm, my counselor parts coming out to think about some different, uh, you know, mental techniques we have for identifying here's like an emotion or here's a sensation or here's a thought. Let's, let's unblend from it, step back from it, just be curious about it. The, the thought itself is not the reality. The, the reality is more like the relationship you have with it in a sense. Although I think C.S. Lewis would like, you know, poke back at me and you know, saying like, nope, some things are actually sublime and <laughs> it's not about what you feel about it. And I would have to say, yes, yes, sir, because you were C.S. Lewis <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and I automatically defer. So, so speaking of, so speaking of relationships could, could make a nice segue into some of the ideas and things from, from chapter six. So chapter six, Winston is back with his diary. So, so at least one of us can journal. (laughs) Right. And he's talking about Catherine, his wife, ex-wife, late wife, something. They're still married. They don't believe in divorce. Okay. That's what it says is they don't let you divorce. But if you're not, I think, procreating, then you can just be separated. Right. And he doesn't even know that she, if she's alive, I think is what he's saying. I want to say he hasn't seen her in like, what, to nine years or something? Like, it's been a long time. Yeah, it's nuts. Like nine or 11 years. Mm-hmm. Also, doesn't really seem to miss her, if no. I'm reading it right. Mm-hmm. Going with, uh, yeah, she seems like a, an extension of the Mr. Parsons mm-hmm. uh, archetype. Uh, someone who has just swallowed the party line to where that's she she is now the party that is that is all that she is or has within her and all that comes back and so and so you so you run into this interesting dynamic where i i don't think winston even says this but i i'm reading into it that he's that he's really lonely and you know catherine his wife is not someone that he can connect with intellectually because she just she just doesn't engage that way because well for 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 whatever reasons in her life where she swallows the party wholeheartedly mm-hmm. and there's not even and there's also like not really like a romantic or or sexual connection though either because of how how the party conditions people to to engage with sex what was well, interesting that like they condition them to marriage the party ha- i think it said the party has to sign off marriages and if there's any um hint of like attraction or anything they won't sign off on it Mm -hmm. because they don't want that emotion between two people right which uh which again uh i mean you're seeing people get you know people getting cut off from from history people getting cut off from memory people getting cut off from language people getting cut off emotion uh emotion that could be attached to you know, romance and attraction. Um, and in a sense, also disconnected from pleasure too. you know, that Winston or the narrator, he's saying, 
The aim of the party was not merely to prevent men and women from forming loyalties which it might not be able to control. Its real undeclared purpose was to remove all pleasure from the sexual act. This is really interesting to me because I think in almost any other context where where sex is talk, talked about, I would expect it to go the other way, like divorcing sex from reproduction and saying it's just about the pleasure and the feeling and the passion and the emotion. Uh, or maybe it's like it's just about like this, you know, you know, dynamic connection I have with the person. And I would more expect that narrative that says it doesn't have to be shouldn't be about babies because, you know, women's rights or whatever reason. Um but but they kind of go the other way here, where they say no, sex is like only about the utility of it. It's not about the pleasure, not about the unity and everything, which threw me because I I, I would not expect that. But I'd be curious what are what are some of your thoughts about that as a literary move, societal move? Well, I think it's not necessarily unexpected from like Orwell's background. Uh, we know he's. Uh, he was an atheist, um, secular humanist, I believe. And so, especially like from, from that viewpoint, looking at the stereotype and speaking of like getting out of your own head and tradition, I've been, uh, listening to a lot of creators outside of Christianity as well, just trying to figure out where they're coming from. There is this idea that, you know, sex and relationship is very, like it's only for procreation or that's what Christians we believe. And so I guess it's not entirely surprising that he feels this way and would write it, would write it in like that. And for a party, for the view of, you know, a communist state, a true communist state, and I would say an overtly, the idea of reproduction purely as, or sex purely as a method of reproduction and that utilitarian sort of thing uh, could flow for sure. I don't know that that's what would actually ever happen, but... Uh, you know, if you're looking at things through purely utilitarian perspective, the idea of passion can be taken and misconstrued as this really strong emotion that can easily cause harm, which we see it, uh, you know, crimes of passion. I, <laughs> I remember one time uh, I was at a frozen yogurt shop with a few friends of mine and saw somebody who I thought I recognized uh, from my high school woman and just waved. She was with another person and uh, passed on. And I think I realized shortly after, like, oh, I guess it wasn't who I thought it was. And the guy comes back in after they exit, after I had waved. And he's like, why did you wave to her? Like, I just thought I knew her. Guess I didn't. Sorry. Uh, but that sort of thing. And so, you know, that idea from a very mechanical, utilitarian point of view, I could certainly see as, yeah, passion is bad painting with very broad strokes well it's it's the it's it's the vulcan concept like 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 the 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 vulcan the vulcan people from star trek which if the listener is not familiar with the vulcans well well you got some catching up to do um (laughs) but but yeah i mean they they've created this race and actually in, in a in a different way like um the the borg also from also from star trek they're 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 two very dispassionate races they they don't do the emotion. They're all about the efficiency. You know, all you know, they're striving for perfection best they know how, and it's to you know remove the emotion, remove remove the the, the passions, and in the case of the Borg, remove the the organic, like the human components, as much as they can. And then they, they look a particular way. I mean, I mean, then the Borg. I mean, they're very 
malevolent, just consuming, uh, very uncompassionate. Also, I mean, like the the Vulcans, they they at least I, I guess can find like a logic to like being compassionate and collaborative, and and then with the Vulcans too. I mean, then they're all dispassionate until it's pun far, and then they have like this like raging hot sex like once every seven years or something. So, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I guess I'm I'm looking at this. I'm looking at this society that's trying to do this to have this like really just like passionless people. And in my head, I'm like, and that that doesn't work. Like that that <laughs> that won't work long term. I mean, a in the movies and books and stories, like it never works because somebody always breaks out because otherwise you wouldn't have a story. But also, I'm just thinking about what I've seen with people as I work with people, and you know, people try to hold back their feelings, hold back the emotions hold back the the loneliness or, or, you know, people try to pretend they don't need people and, and they have to do like a whole lot of things to maintain that, like all of these addictive things or all of these compulsive things, or, or at some point that just breaks, like you're, you've got so much emotion that needs to come out and it's there and it's real and you're not ignoring it or, or you're ignoring it and not acknowledging it. And you end up having to do more and more and more and more to ignore the emotion because it's building and building and building and building. And you either become like more of an addicted person or more of an angry person or more of this like rigidly controlling like person or, or you become this really vapid person. And maybe that's like something going on with someone like Parsons or someone like Catherine in this story is they cut off all of these parts of themselves and eventually all that's left that's safe to be is this really superficial like oh i'll get the party line because like that's the only thing left that feels safe because all of the rest is all of this unacknowledged unwitnessed emotion passion humanity there's one part at the very beginning of chapter six where it's talking about winston's reaction to what he's writing in his diary and the way it's described is very similar to that two-minute hate all the emotion that's felt there And so I think like the society, they're trying to, they know that these people need these emotions. They have a lot that they need to get out. So that's what these two minute hates are for is just, we're going to let you feel and feel everything you possibly can as fast as possible to get it all out. But then when they are feeling things outside of that, this is the only way they know how to feel. So you're training people to, you know, not to be able to experience you know, passion and all this, except for as this one thing, which means when they get to these relationships, they're a lot more trained to be like, this is normal. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that too. Like Winston has these weird moments, quote unquote, moments of clarity where he's just spastically writing through. And yeah, I could see that as kind of a function of conditioning. It's interesting, again, thinking about what's what's the role of the society, Big Brother and all of this, and can be used on this as kind of the, the, the fullness of a socialist state where the state is controlling, it has a complete control of every aspect of production, you know, whether it's producing uh, boots, producing gin, <laughs> the gin, <laughs> we, should, we, should have, we should have a celebratory gin at the end of this book, or the, or the middle... <laughs> But like, yeah, the society's controlling production of, you know, boots and gin and razor blades and babies and, and even children because they're talking about like wanting, you know, they, they're controlling how and when people have babies, how and when those those babies are are raised and schooled. And, and here even like in a sense, like the production of feelings, like even that is uh, falling under the control of the state. Yeah, I guess that just 
you know, I don't know what to do with that. So it's just, that seems like where the state is going. And this, this is the kind of culture and people that comes out of that. So socialism for the win, I guess, (laughs) or, or maybe not. I don't know. (laughs) I I mean, yeah, it's, that's a whole other question. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I mean, since I've invoked the, the S word, uh, I know, I mean, Jake, what are some, I mean, you, you do the Scotch and socialism podcast. Like what would you, um, what are your, what are your thoughts on this? On, on socialism? <laughs> <laughs> I think my main thought right now boils down to it's, it's more complicated than people want to make it out to be. Like people will often point to 1984 as like, see, see how bad it would be, which is just not really socialism i would argue um or at least it's it is only one flavor uh i am not necessarily one for socialism as much as i am for one who's uh more for uh more i guess erring towards socialist type of spending for government i'm i'm actually somebody broke it down for me and i was like oh my gosh this is why i feel this way um why do we pay so many taxes but not actually have things like decent health care so that's why I flip flop and back and forth between either like raging socialist sometimes or raging libertarian, because if I'm paying for it, I want to have the things. But if I'm paying not paying for it and not getting these things that I think you know, I think healthcare should be available for everybody. And I think there's a lot of things that should be available for everybody. Then don't make me pay for it because clearly, like the money is being wasted, or that's like a very um, reductive view, even of itself. And I know that, but uh, that's kind of where I'm at is just as if we're talking about series of socialism. And I think it's, you know, this book, 1984, is definitely one aspect that could be it's um, it's not really even what happened with the Soviets. But we also see more what we in, in the States, many of us would call socialist governments that have worked quite well. Um, and we also point to other failed social or failing socialist ish socialist ish states like venezuela or things like that and we forget that um the u.s kind of caused a lot of their financial problems right now like we topple governments as a pastime (laughs) yeah (laughs) so it's like i said it it boils down to it's always more complicated than people want and especially than i want to make it out to be that, that that resonates, I think. Uh, it feels kind of a fair assessment, like, uh, and and also with maybe these might be like kind of cop out statements, but like, I mean, you know, no no government, no government's perfect, like, like, <laughs> well, they're not, like, right? Like, it just I mean, brings me back to like, no church is perfect, right, 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 yeah, again, yeah. true, uh-huh. right? Because I mean, we could like, I mean, if the the counterpart is capitalism, I mean, capitalism has problems too, but but also like there there, there are some functional aspects of that too. Uh, I'm just thinking too, like, and imagine trying to implement like a socialist versus capitalist versus libertarian state probably changes. Like after once the amount of people crosses a certain threshold of like, this might work better for small groups than big groups, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm just, I'm not, I'm imagining like what's, what's the, the American population now, like, like what, 350 million, something, something around there. Like that's just gotta be hard to manage. Like in general, like, no matter what system, no, no matter what approach, and with as many different beliefs and values floating around as, as we have, like, I mean, there's there's no there's no way to please everybody. 
Right. Or, right. and there's no way to like really adequately like meet everybody's needs. And so in, in some sense, like, like everything's set up to fail. But yeah, I, I think, I think Jake, you, you speak wisdom when you, you reference that, like, uh, it's more complex <laughs> than we'd like it to be. Uh, there, there is, there's a draw to the, 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 the meme version of, uh, a political structure or philosophy, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. because it's quippy and I can understand it, but almost, almost nothing fits into a meme. Right. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I need to plaster that somewhere because that is uh, one of my soapboxes. I won't get on okay. there, but okay. you can make a meme about it. I should. I should make a meme about it. <laughs> make a t-shirt. People still wouldn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we either need to not meet in the mornings or I need gin. <laughs> so, <laughs> you could uh, do what I do and get up way early. I could do that. And then you not understand a word of my word salad. So. <laughs> I've been up since 530 this morning. Oh, oh my, my gosh. Oh, you hero. Uh, and it's later in the day for you there, too. It's 10 o'clock right now. Oh, uh, my goodness. Go take okay. a nap. Yeah. <laughs> that's what that's what nap time is later on. That's right. why I kids who nap. Yes, that's a really good thing. All right. So, yeah, so that's the gist of chapters five and six. Uh, a lot about words, a lot about relationships, and some random musings on what happens when those things get tampered with in significant ways. Yeah, and, and parting thoughts, I guess, if there were a, a shaping factor, I know, think, thinking about, like, how, how does... How does a story shape us or could shape us or hopefully does not shape us or or something? Uh, what what stands out to you the most? And, and if there's something for the reader to take and continue thinking about, uh, what would you want to what would you want to send them with? Mine's very simple. Words are hard, but important. <laughs> Words are hard. I like it. I like it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, yeah, mine would go along with that. Perception is a really tricky thing. Be be aware of your own perception. Don't let others define it for you, but also be aware that your perception is not the whole picture. Uh, that sounds so so good. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna say putting words to feelings and passions is really important. Mm. When you're not a when you're not doing that, not able to do that, uh, you give up part of your humanity, and and that's just not good. all right well let's end the official discussion there we'll now shift to after party and uh (laughs) see you all next time next week with more chapters and that will be fun too yes thank you and good night or good morning or whenever it is that you're listening to this (laughs) and good luck (laughs) and good luck is a podcast by Moses Bernabe. If you like what you hear, consider supporting the show with dollars, reviews, or shares, or all of the above. Word and Journey can be found on most major podcast platforms and on my author Patreon at patreon.com slash Moses Bernabe. Moses Bernabe can be found at mosesbernabe.com. Contact info for my most excellent co-hosts can be found in the liner notes. The podcast logo was designed by TJ Todd with additional development by Moses Bernabe. The theme music is by Aaron Esparza. This episode was mastered by Breakfast Puppies. 
Thanks for listening and see you next time.